If you want to turn with me in your Bibles, we're going to be in Psalm 23. And our larger series we're going through, we're doing a series called The House That Jesus Builds. And Matthew 16 through 20, Jesus lays out the blueprint for the house that he's going to build. And as we try and build our church, we want to follow the blueprint that he lays out. And it begins in 16, but saying that the foundation of this house, this house is built on the foundation of a confession that Peter makes. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then a commitment where he calls them to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. So confession and a commitment, that's the foundation. And on that confession, the confession that you are the Christ is a confession that has kind of three parts. There's three parts to that foundation. You're confessing that Jesus as the Christ means he's our teacher or our prophet, or our philosopher, or our coach, however you want to conceptualize, he's the one who's in charge to give the authoritative instructions on the subject matter that we're talking about. And what we're talking about here is how to live, how to live well, how to live in the world he's created so that we experience life and health and wholeness. So you confess that he's your teacher, he's the prophet, he's the teacher. But then the second part of that confession is that we confess that he's our king, or he's our ruler, or he's our leader. And so for this week and some next week, I want to think about what does it mean to confess that Jesus is our leader? We follow him as king. And, you know, leadership is such a a big topic. You know, it's the kind of thing that the books on leadership abound, the conferences abound, the podcasts abound. It's, It's this huge topic. So when we're talking about confessing that Christ is our leader... What does that actually mean? What does true leadership look like? And the one thing I really want you to think about this morning is that in Christ's church, uh, we all are given leadership responsibilities. We all have something we're supposed to lead, but before we can learn to lead, we have to learn to follow. That real leadership, in essence, uh, is, is followership. We have to learn to follow. Before you can lead, you have to follow. All Christians are first followers before we are leaders. You know, this first call or the great call to leadership in any responsibility is first a call to follow him as our good shepherd. And so what I want to do this morning, this primarily is is flowing from just the, the past week that we've had just personally as a church, walking through certain things, thinking what I need And then hopefully maybe you're in a position where what you need this morning is just to marinate on Psalm 23, as it's probably the most powerful place in all the scripture that tells us what does it mean to have Christ, have God, have Christ as the good shepherd who we follow. And so we want to look at this in many ways. It's kind of like our Advent series that we did when we looked at love from 1 Corinthians 13. And says before you can demonstrate this kind of love to others, you have to first experience it from him. And it's the same thing with Psalm 23. Before you can ever lead others, you have to learn how to follow him. And this is the the model of how we are led. So what I want to do this morning is we're just going to go to Psalm 23 and just kind of marinate for a few minutes in each of its phrases and think about how he leads and loves his own. So let's read it, and then we'll look at a couple pieces of the structure that I want you to notice. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. 
He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So a couple things about the structure. Notice kind of the movement. You know, we begin in the beginning, it's about the things that he provides. So he provides, <clears throat> he provides food and drink. He provides a feast, these flush pastures and still waters. And then notice we end <clears throat> with the feast that he provides. So it ends with food and drink as him preparing a table. You know, kind of in the middle, we have the security that he gives. We have safety in travels. He leads me. He, uh, he restores, he captures, he brings me back, and then he leads. And then at the back end, we have safety and security and comfort. His rod and his staff, they protect me. And then right in the middle is that I will not fear. It's even though I walk through this valley of the shadow of, the de of death, you are with me. So I will fear no evil. And then notice also the movement between the, the pronouns. Notice, you know, we begin with I, my, and then we, be, we end with me, my life. But notice then there's a movement with the he. This is what he does. David's testifying, he makes, he leads, he restores, he. And then in the middle, it's back to I, even though I walk. You are with me. I will fear. And then it shifts to you. You are with me. Your rod, your staff, you, you. So it moves from declaring about what he has done, a declaration, to a conversation. You, this is what you've done. Testimony, then prayer. And right in the middle is the presence of the Lord. At the very heart of this is the key moment is that you are with me. And in this poem, this is the ultimate reality. This is the thing that which everything needs to point towards and everything needs to flow out of. If you have this, if you have you are with me, you can endure anything. If you have you are with me, you know, you can live in this world and you can um, experience everything the world has to offer and you can accumulate everything that the world can give. But if you don't have him with you at the end, you have nothing. And you at the end of your life can end where you have experienced nothing that the world has to offer or accumulated nothing that it can give. But if he is with you, you have everything. This is the heart and the core of what it means to live and to live well. So let's kind of just move through and pull out a couple realities. So first, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. You notice that's a statement of fact. That's a relational reality. It's kind of like if I say Cynthia is my wife or Madeline is my daughter or Emma is my dog. These are relational realities. These are things that are just, they just are. And so this is not a statement about how David hopes things would be or what he would like or an aspiration. It's just what is. So do you know that this is, that this is who the Lord is? Now, when you move out, Oh, sorry, head back. 
Now, when we move out, notice the Lord is my shepherd, and because he's my shepherd, now I'm not going to have any want or no lack. Now, he's my shepherd, so we're going to move out into the pasture land. So kind of think in your mind, you go out into the open pasture land of Judea, you know, before cell phones. This might be hard for some to conceptualize. We were actually at our neighborhood pool yesterday, and we were talking, and the girls find it so funny that when I was in college, I was a lifeguard. And they said, is, is being a lifeguard boring, or was it a lot of fun? So no, it's really just boring. You just kind of sit and have to watch. And then one of the girls said, well, when you were bored, could you just play, did you just play on your phone the whole time? I said, you won't believe this. When I was a lifeguard, we didn't have phones. It's like, mind blown. Like, what in the world do you do? Like, how did you fill your time those eons ago? When you, it's like, I had to just, like, do my job and just think. It's amazing. So you think, all right, they go out into the pasture lands. All right, what are they going to do? There's no phones. Once you left the village, you're utterly on your own. And one of the best books about this passage is by Ken Bailey, who was a, he taught in, he was a missionary that uh, ministered to Bedouin tribes for 20, 30 years, also taught at a seminary in Bethlehem and just has a unique, incredible perspective. So almost every single thing I say about the context comes from him. So I don't have to, it'll just be monotonous for me over and over to say, as Ken Bailey says. And so just, that's that. So one of the things he says, like when the shepherds would go out, his words is they have to surrender to the will of the wilderness. You're going out and you're surrendering to the will or the, you're now at the mercies of the desert. So you have no protection. I mean, there's no police you can call. There's thieves you have to worry about. There's wild animals you have to worry about. Snakes, dust storms, water shortages, loose rocks, the furnace. All of these are now at your mercy. And so you're walking and you have to trust your shepherd. You know, no sheep would be taken out into the pasture alone. Notice how David says, the Lord is my shepherd, but he's part of a flock. No sheep would go out alone. You would go as a flock so he's ex de describing, so in one sense, you know, the, the Christian life is personal. He's my shepherd, but it's never private. You're always with a people, with a group. But probably in this whole thing, that two-letter word, my, is the sweetest and most profound word. You know, it's just one syllable. It's just two letters, but if the reality enters into your soul, it can give you stability in the midst of any storm or situation. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And that's a hard concept for us to kind of get our minds around because, you know, our entire economic structure is built on creating and then attempting to satisfy wants. And uh, turn, you know, one of the things our girls will go back and forth when one asks for, you know, a new toy at Walmart. And they'll say, no, 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 you don't need that. You just want that. And I'll kind of laugh and say, well, actually, there's not one thing in this store we actually need, except maybe the bread or the water. That's it. Everything else is just trying to, you know, fan the flames of desire. So what does it mean that I shall not want? It means that here we can find a remedy to the pandemic that has swept our culture for 100 years. You know, the pandemic of ill contentment, the pandemic of desire, always wanting more, of coveting. It says, I shall not want. He'll provide the very things that I need. Food, drink, rescue, dwelling, protection, all the things talked about here. 
But also notice it's only in the beginning, the Lord, and at the very end, the Lord. The only times the Lord is directly referenced is there at the very beginning and the very end. And what I see is he is the one who's directing the whole thing. He is the one who will see to my pasturing by day. He is the one who will bring me safely home by night. And in between, it's his goodness and his mercy that are following me. So the Lord is my shepherd. Now, how does that shepherd then take care of his sheep? Notice what he begins with. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me to still waters. That's what he provides food and drink. Green pastures, food, still waters, drink. He meets the most basic needs at a practical level. That's what real love does. It meets the basic needs at a practical level. Again, Ken Bailey jokes that a dog can be trained to sit and lie down, but sheep can't. They'll only lie down if their bellies are full, their thirst are quenched, and there's no danger around. Sounds like some guys I know. <laughs> Says even a lone dog barking in the night can cause the whole herd to jump and scatter. So in generally in Israel, you only have green pastures uh, three months out of the year. And so for the whole, all the other months, you're looking at where's the food? We have to search for it. We have to find it. We have to trust that he knows where it is and he will lead us to it. He leads them. And you think, all right, what kind of food does he give us? Where does he lead us? What type of food has he provided you know, listen to his son when the son asks, you know, he fasts, but then Satan tempts him. He says, look, man doesn't live on bread alone, but we have soul food. We live on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Remember in John 4, when the disciples go and they, uh, they come back to Jesus and they wonder, you know, uh, he hasn't eaten anything. What has he eaten? He says, look, I have food you don't know about. So there's food for my soul, which is to, to do the will of my father. So he provides his word. He provides food. But the shepherd has to plan his whole day around the availability of water. Water becomes the most precious reality. And then notice, he leads me. He leads me. He doesn't drive me. He leads. He walks slowly in front. Often he'll sing his own call and there'll be a, maybe a slow tune or a tune on a pipe and the, his sheep know his voice and they follow. He leads. You know, Bailey again tells this funny, just kind of funny story about, well, funny is not the right word. Uh, he tells a story about the, this uh, group of Bedouin uh, shepherds, kind of uh, peasants in essence, who uh, there was a time of occupation and a foreign invading army kind of had come over and they had confiscated the tribes, all their sheep, and they took them. And one of the little boys was a 10-year-old boy who was an orphan, and all he had was the, the, those sheep. And so he went and appealed to the kind of occupying force, and the soldiers mocking him, because they had probably several hundred sheep that they had stolen, and he wanted his eight back. And so the soldiers started mocking him and say, all right, if you can pick out your eight, you can have them back. And so he said he then let out this beautiful melodic whistle and instantly eight of them popped up and started coming right to him. And then with all the kind of chutzpah of a 10-year-old boy, like, ah, see? <laughs> and, uh, you know, Bailey said it's one of the most beautiful illustrations he's ever seen of what it means that my sheep, they hear my voice and they hear it and they can follow so they, he leads them with the sound of his voice. He leads them 
gently on. Now notice where he leads them to. He leads them beside still waters. And you think about, all right, what does that mean? A place of peace, calm, serenity. And you might be thinking, well, of course he'd lead David. You know, David lived kind of this idyllic life in the country on the farm where, you know, probably woke up every day and you know, coffee hadn't been invented yet, but there was something they probably drank, you know, fig juice and had a nice, you know, slow morning. You think about David's life. Like, you know, the realities of his life. David's life was utterly hectic. So where did he find rest? You know, he doesn't lead him to rest kind of apart from the chaos. He leads him to rest in the midst of chaos. You know, just think about what David experienced. I mean, in his life, he has experienced uh, war. He experienced abandonment. He experienced murder, incest, betrayal, adultery, treachery, civil war. Experienced the killing of one of his own sons. Experienced, I mean, he knew them all. So where did rest come from? And you can see it wasn't in the, in the mid, it wasn't apart from the chaos. It was in the midst of it. So he feeds and he leads. How does he feed? He feeds you with his word. What's the water your soul's meant to drink? It's prayer and worship. How does he lead you? He leads you with, by his spirit. He leads you by other people who can help uh, point you in the way you should go. He leads and he feeds. But then notice the security that he brings. He restores my soul. You know, that word for restore is the word for repent, to return, to bring back. He returns me. He brings me back. He restores my soul. Here's what's happening when the sheep is lost and the good shepherd then has to go and get them. You know, what happens to the sheep, often when they get lost, they will find themselves lost and they'll try and hide in like a, a bush, like a, a bramble kind of bush, a thicket, and they'll just start bleeding out. And it almost looks as comical as like you see a kid who thinks they're like hiding and because they can't see you, you can't see them. So it's like the sheep, this giant, you know, you think these sheep don't think like little bitty lambs. You need to think 150 pound, big, smelly, hairy, messy things. And they're hiding behind a little bush thinking they're not being seen. And then they start bleeding out. And you know, of course, what that is, that's like a siren call to all the predators. Help are here. Here I am. Come kill me. And that's what they do. And they bleed out. And their only hope is that the shepherd will hear and that he will go and get them and bring them back. And I don't know if you just hear the sound of the people in our world who are just bleeding out and it's just lost souls. I read this week an interview of somebody. I, I read an interview from Billie Eilish and I don't know a thing about this person. I know she's a, has, is a musician. I can't tell you one song that she's ever sung. But as I was listening to this poor 19 or 20 year old reading this interview, it just had the sound to me of this poor sheep just bleeding out. Help me, help me. Telling the story about how she's been addicted to graphic images that taint and twist one of God's greatest gifts to us ever since she was nine and how it's distorted the way she views reality. And it's a sad tale of a sheep just bleeding. Help. Help me. And that's what, that's what happens. We, we cry out. We cry out for help. And then the good shepherd, he has to come and get us. He has to come find us. 
And you think about the reality of what it takes to bring them back. You know, you need to think the shepherd has to go find them. They're stuck. They weigh about 100 to 150 pounds. Shepherd's got to hike them up, put them on his shoulders, and then traverse through a couple miles of mountainous terrain. I don't know if you've ever carried 150 pounds on your back while you walk through mountainous terrain. I haven't. I imagine it's pretty tough. And this is the kind of thing that the shepherd does. He has to carry us and bring us back. But then he also has to restore the sheep to the fold because that sheep getting lost and that sheep leaving has actually put the entire group in danger. So it has to be restored to the whole fold. And he does those. He goes and he gets the lost and then he brings them back. So I don't know if you can empathize with that sheep. I mean, do you feel lost this morning? Do you feel aimless? Do you feel dry? Then send out the the call, help me, help me. Then he comes and he restores them. And then notice, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, or he does this, he'll lead me on the paths for his namesake. And then we move into the very center. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. You know, this is the very center, even though I walk every day, step, step, keep going every day, one, one day, one step closer to dying. We go through this valley. You walk through it. Can't go around it. Can't go under it. So I don't know if some of you are following along with the... Um, the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, and kind of the protagonist there, one of the things that was often mocked was, you know, he would claim that I can read a book a day. And then some people would say, oh, that's amazing. Other people would say, well, that's ridiculous. They would kind of call us, say, there's, no, there's nobody who can read a book a day. And um, I don't know, at, I, that's not all that impressive at our house. In our house, we knock out at least half a dozen every single day. I mean, we get like duck and goose, go to the beach. We've got, you know, good night, good night construction site. We get that every day. Uh, one of my current favorites that I'm about to work into the rotation again until we get over this is no more diapers for Ducky. So I don't know if you're in a situation, I highly recommend no more diapers for Ducky. But one book we used to read every single day years ago, and we haven't in a while, is uh, Going on a Bear Hunt. So I don't know if you're familiar with this book, but the whole, the concept is that this family's going to go on this great adventure, and they're going to go on a bear hunt. But uh, you know, we're going on a bear hunt. We're not scared, and uh, there's all these impediments that come. Like we want to go on this bear hunt, but then there's you know this 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 field that we have to go through, or there's these woods, or there's this river, and there oh, we're going on a bear hunt. We're not scared. You know, let's go. Oh no, there's a river. And you can't go over it. You can't go under it. You have to go through it. And you know, the reality is that there's this thing called death. And you cannot go over it. You cannot go under it. You can't go around it. You have to go through it. And every person in here will either, you will go through it with yourself. You will go through it with somebody you love. You might have to go through it with a child, or you might have to go through it with a spouse. You can't go around it. You have to go through it. So what is your only hope that's going to get you through it? It's that I walk through the shadow of death. 
that now somehow it's been transformed. And even though I get just close to it, I am close and there is darkness and I can feel it. It is so close. It is a shadow, no longer the substance. It's the shadow, not the reality. So how do we experience the, it being transformed into a shadow? Because shadow dogs can't bite you. Shadow swords can't stab you. And shadow death can't kill you. So how does it become the shadow? I can't think about this concept without thinking about a story I've told a number of times, but it comes from uh, D.G. Barnhouse, who was a pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church, and very early in his ministry, he was in his kind of mid to late 30s. He had two young girls, and then very tragically, his, his wife was killed, and he was just kind of spiraling and trying to think about how to minister, how to love his children. And uh, they were actually coming home from the memorial service and they were sitting at a red light and this giant kind of truck came by them and it came swooping by and it shook the whole car. And then he looked at the girls and he said, girls, would you rather get hit by the truck or the shadow? And then of course, well, the, the shadow daddy. And he said, on the cross, Jesus got hit by the truck. Yesterday, mommy got hit by the shadow. That's what it means. Well, he's been transformed. We walk through the shadow of death. And because we walk and can enter into the shadow, it doesn't mean it's not dark, it's not scary, but it can't sting. And so now we know that we don't have to fear because you are with me. That's the turning point of the whole thing. It moves from he, what he's done, to you. David now addresses God directly. And here is his deepest sense of hope. Here's his deepest sense of security. God is with him. And then now it's God who's going to protect him. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You know, sheep have no defensive weapons. They have no teeth. They have no claws. They can't bite. They can't kick. They can't run very fast. If they're in a situation where a predator on them, they either are saved or they die. And that's what the rod is. When you think rod, you think about a two and a half foot kind of mace that has a strong kind of ball on the end with iron in it. This was the kind of thing the shepherd would wield to crush the head of a bear or the head of a lion. That's the rod. It protects me. But then the staff, that's what you've seen, the long images, about seven, eight foot long, kind of curved stick. This is what they would use to help walk. This is what they use to help send over and pull the sheep back or pop them on the bottom and let them know which way they need to go. This was for guidance. One's protect, one's to guide. And we need both of those things. Our, he protects us, he guides you know, I think one of the great revelations is when we stand before heaven, we enter into heaven and then it, it will dawn on us how much he's actually protected and how much he's guided us and how much he's kept us from the consequences of our own dumb decisions, his protection, his guidance. And then notice how it moves to the very end. We're back in the realm of food and drink, but notice how the imagery changes now. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup runs over. So he's back in the realm of now it's, uh, he's the host and he brings his guests in. So he's providing, you know, this is an image of hospitality. You know, in the Middle Eastern world, a man's fame in the Middle East was by the spread of his table. 
about his hospitality. So if you really wanted to demonstrate and display that you've made it, you wouldn't do it like the clothes you wear or the kind of car you drive. The way you do those, you kind of have uh, lavish parties with so much food that people can't eat it all. That's where you demonstrate your, your, kind of, your, your greatness. So the image here is that he's prepared this table. And what I love is you see the different attributes of all the things that God is doing. God is the strong protector who can protect. He's the one who provides, but he's also the one who prepares. You know, this is the image of God putting on the apron, and he's the one who's going to prepare the table. And you can see this even in stories like in Abraham, when Abraham wants to prepare the feast, he doesn't do it. He has someone else to do it. Or the prodigal son, when he comes home and the father, he doesn't prepare the table. He asks the servants to prepare the table. But here it's God himself who's preparing the table. And of course, it, you know, anyone who's ever prepared a feast for another, you know, the way the people honor you, you know, how do you honor someone who's prepared a feast for you? You eat what they've cooked. You don't say, well, no, thanks. I'm actually watching my carbs today. You know, I spent all day making you this birthday cake. Watch your carbs tomorrow. The way you honor them is you eat what they've, they've provided. You feast. He creates a feast for them. And then notice, lastly, just what follows, goodness and mercy. Your shepherds would often have these assistants, sometimes little boys, sometimes as dogs. The sheep, in essence, the sheep dogs would follow. They would follow after the herd, nipping at their heels, making sure they stayed going in the right direction and on the right track. And notice it's goodness and mercy. That word goodness has said his loving kindness, his faithfulness. That's what's following me. That's what's nipping at my heels, trying to push me into the right direction. So as we think about this and just as we wrap up a couple things, uh, fabulous book on pastoral leadership or just talking about leadership uh, by Tom Nelson. He said one of the most transformative things for him as a leader is when he internalized and just worked Psalm 23 into his own soul and kind of what it did is it kind of gave him a sense of as he's trying to lead his shepherd's active presence then he felt the, his wise guidance, his abundant provisions, his hopeful encouragement. So it's kind of that constellation of Psalm 23 realities. It took a long time to slowly work into him, but it was the most transformative thing that ever happened, you know, just as a leader. So it means to lead well is that you lead in a way that's mimicking and mirroring how Christ has led us. But in order before you can lead well, you have to follow well. So how can you follow him well? A couple things. We follow him completely. Notice the sheep don't get to choose like when and where they go out. When the shepherd goes out, they don't get to say, ah, oh, well, I don't think I'm going to go today. You guys go on and I'll, I'll come later. They don't get to say after he's led them to the green pastures, they don't th get to say, I think we'll just kind of stay here. You go on. I'll text you when I'm ready for you to pick me up. I'll hang out by myself till the wolf comes and you can come and, and rescue me. But if you're going to follow, you have to follow completely. You follow dependently. He's the one who protects. He's the one who provides. And then you follow joyfully because we follow a good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. You know, it's interesting to think about in the Middle East, the way a man would kind of, you know, make his name. You know, his fame was uh, how lavish could he provide a table you know, at incredibly lavish at tremendous cost to himself. 
So you think, all right, what type of table, what type of lavish table has the Lord provided at tremendous cost to himself? And every week we celebrate the table that he ushers us to. And he says, the bread is not just the sweat of my labor, it's the reality of my body. I provide just not skillful culinary skills for this bread. This bread is actually my body that's broken for you. So on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body broken for you. At his table is his broken body. And then the cup that he provides at his table is his shed blood. It says, this cup represents my blood that's shed for you, the forgiveness of your sins. So Lord, we praise you for your grace and mercy. We thank you that your goodness, the promise that your goodness and your mercy will follow us all of our days. So we ask that you help us to know this reality. Pray for anyone who's come in and they reckon they feel like they're all just a lost sheep. They feel aimless. They feel lost. They feel hopeless and helpless. I pray that they would cry out to you and that you would help them, that you would redeem them, that you would restore them, that you would bring them back. I pray that you help us to know what it means that if you're our shepherd, there's nothing we really want. So if there's anyone here this morning, they're wrestling with being ill-content about the things that they have or the things they've experienced or what they don't have. We pray that you would help them to see that in you they have all they need and all they could ever want. So we thank you for this truth and we ask that you would work it down into the very uh, fiber of our being. And this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. If you'll stand and, and receive the benediction. And now may the love of a dying Savior the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this week, forever, and always. Amen. Go in peace.